Recorded at Get a Grip Studios in Toronto, Canada. A Get a Grip management production and in association with the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. Financially supported by the good folks at the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors, this is Restoring Darkness podcast. This episode of Restoring Darkness is brought to you by Evluma. If you're serious about contributing to the reduction of light pollution, go to evluma.com, hover over products, and click on Dark Sky Friendly Lighting. Both the Omnimax and Ariamax lights are International Dark Sky Association certified. The warmer color temperatures of the Omnimax reduce the more easily scattered blue wavelengths, which contribute to glare and sky glow. With Ariamax lights, you get full cutoff, which also means no uplight and a significantly reduced contribution to sky glow. And all of Avluma's outdoor lighting product lines come with dimmable drivers for even more control. If your customer is looking for dark sky friendly fixtures with energy savings while still meeting the demands of decorative lighting, look no further than Evluma. Evluma, illuminating the pursuit of dark skies. Welcome back, folks, to the Restoring Darkness podcast. On today's show, we have Kate Hickox from Pacific Northwest National Laboratory, that's PNNL. Uh, she joined PNNL as a lighting research scientist in 2020. She's a creative thinker in the field of lighting with over 18 years of experience in both lighting research and lighting design. No matter which hat she's wearing, her goals are simple, to provide equitable and universal lighting solutions that support humans and the environment. That's a tall task. <laughs> Kate's unique background blends with the artistic, blends the artistic with the practical and allows for discovery of unique design solutions and innovative research-based strategies. She has co- she's authored and co-authored many publications and reports and has presented seminars at Light for International, I, lots of different shows. She's well-known in the industry um, on topics including lighting and sustainability, designing for darkness, which we're going to talk about, glare and, uh, glare and pers- brightness perception, lighting and acoustics, as well as lighting quality metrics. Welcome to the Restoring Darkness, Kate. Say hello to John Bullock. <laughs> Thank you. Hi. Nice to meet you. Yeah. Hello, Kate. Let's talk a little bit. John and I have been speaking, you know, on, on this show and on another show we do for lightheadmag.com about darkness restoration. And you mentioned here designing for darkness. Um, I don't come across that term much. Tell us a little bit about what that means. Um, I guess, yeah, uh, I, I just started using that term. I, I might, might have heard it somewhere else, but, um, you know, and there was a, a time period before I started at PNNL where I uh, had an architectural lighting company and um, I had been doing uh, some some research. So there's a poster, actually, it's here. There's a poster behind me. Um, that I developed based on some research that I had done um, for the DLC, for the Design Lights Consortium in sort of in the lead up to their Luna work uh, for the Luna program. And uh, that was looking at, um, we, we did some interviews and we did, uh, I did a lot of um, sort of literature re- review and background research on, on what's going on right now in, in, in terms of, you know, how are people addressing darkness in their work and what kind of metrics are they using? And um, and then in my own work, I tried to you know of, of course you do your best to get any client, um, but tried to 
you know, I tried to cultivate relationships with some clients that really appreciated darkness. And so I just found that um, that was a, you know, one of the um, goals that I have was, th you know, thinking about designing with darkness or designing for darkness in the project. And so, um, you know, along with other sustainability goals, right? But that would be just an early uh, phrase I might use in, in conversations to just kind of feel out where the client was in terms of their thoughts about uh, designing for nighttime. So, I mean, a, a great example was the work that I did with um, Dartmouth College. And they really, um, you know, we were selecting lighting for nighttime, obviously. So you're, you're, you know, really thinking about how to light the pathway, how to light for people. But at the same time, they really appreciated having a dark campus and a dark, you know, a, a view of the sky. So, um, so it was sort of, yeah, that was one of the main criteria, you know, of the design process. So that's, I think, why I use that phrase. How many of your clients are actually um, ready for that conversation where they're they're bringing you in because you design for darkness? And how many of them are you convincing? And have you had any any success convincing someone from um, getting away from uh, the glare bombs and some of this, you know, as much light, the more light, the better kind of attitude as a distributor, I have a very difficult time talking manufacturers and commercial buildings into what they perceive as less light. Why would I change my lights if I'm going to have less light? You know, um, and the 5,000 Kelvin are, are the color temperatures. So were your customers mostly primed? Were they ready for this conversation and waiting for your expertise? Or did you do a lot of convincing? Uh, huh, I'd say, you know, it's across the board, but, um, you know, I think I had some, what, what I think are, what I hope, you know, over time would be some successes. Um, even when I worked at other, uh, when I worked for other lighting firms and, and even on my own, um, you know, there were some clients that, well, I, I, I have a great example, I guess, um, in that, um, and of course I'm working for PNNL now and that's, that's what I do full time, but I have, um, there's one project that I had from from my architectural lighting days that is is just wrapping up now um, so I'm, I'm involved in it but it's um, uh, it's called opening the edge and it's a it's a design project for the New York City Housing Authority um, along with the design trust for public space and it's an idea that was um, there's an artist Jane Greengold that um, came up with this idea to take down the fence around this one little green space it's like postage stamp size spot on a New York City um, housing authority property. Um, and uh, so of course, you know, it seems like a really easy thing, take down the fence. But then, you know, if you take down the fence, then you need some other infrastructure and you need lighting. And so a lot of people got involved in it. And, um, you know, that there's sort of a, it, it's really difficult to get a, a clear sense of, sometimes I think clear sense of what the uh, requirements are on different New York City Housing Authority properties. There's different sets of rules and requirements, um, but traditionally what they're looking for is a one foot candle uh, minimum on the surfaces, you know, and so that, that's really high. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, even for an urban setting, right? And so, you know, if you look at other recommendations um, from the IES, uh, you know, they would say maybe one foot candle average. Um, which just gives you a lot more flexibility in a space. And it's a small space. Um, and so we really um, had a lot of conversations with um, the people that are involved on in that project related to the New York City Housing Authority. Of course, this isn't like broadly across the board, but for this property, 
um, you know, they were we were able to um, go back and forth on that and propose that we use the average instead of the minimum. So I think that's a great, you know, it's a small thing, but it means that we have the flexibility to design a space in a way that that better meets, you know, the existing environment, right? Because sometimes the pathways around there are really dark. You don't want to have this super bright, you know, one foot candle minimum space inside of other dark pathways if that's not mm. safe either. So, um, so yeah, I think we're, so now for, for that area, we're designing to the one foot candle average, which I think is, is pretty exciting. I mean, that's a great step. And, and they're very um, interested in having that conversation. You know, I don't know if that's going to then um, be extrapolated or, you know, used on other properties, but this is a pilot project and um, that's, you know, I don't know, you know, lighting people are going to care about that. Other people maybe aren't going to know the subtleties of that difference. Sure. But, you know, as this moves forward, I think that's one of the things I'm excited about highlighting, you know, as it gets installed and as we see that space. And we have some really beautiful fixtures that are specified for that uh, space right now. And I think it's just going to be, um, you know, I hope that it is as beautiful as we want it to be. And I think the, the great thing about that is it was designed by the community. So I just want to highlight that as well since we're talking about it. Well, um, you know, so that's really great but yeah but i think that's you know even something like that where it's um you know it's it's a new york city housing property in the middle of the city where you have safety and security concerns you know i think we were able to okay to do so that's job. before i turn it over to john i'm just taking notes here I, there's a million different directions i could go in here but you mentioned the word beauty which i like uh, you hardly it's re-emerging that that term the terms like that are starting to come back into lighting um, and I guess my question, you know, I, I see on your bio here when you read a little deeper and there's a little bit about equity, energy equity and, and, and the community different. You talked a little bit about the community. Um, there's There seems to be, particularly in the United States, a um, general practice is to light underprivileged neighborhoods like as high as possible. Keyhole to keyhole was one of the terms they used in Chicago. And I'm wondering, is this safe, Kate? Is it safe to light, uh, to overlight or to, to um, and, and one comment on the average, usually when, if somebody said it was going to be a one foot candle minimum or one foot candle average, they probably put 15. Like that's the typical way it would be in the past. They would probably way overdo it. Um, but what is safe? Is more light safe? What, what, is, what does that word mean in, in this context? Um, well, yeah, that's, I mean, <sighs> Context is the right word right, to, mm -hmm. to answer that question because um, you know one interesting thing that that I saw when uh, New York City was doing their big transition to LEDs um, was that and this is anecdotal but this is something I heard from some of the engineers that were specifying and installing the lights um, was that you know you you heard a lot of complaints about one, the sort of the, you know, they picked 4,000K. So it was 4,000K LEDs, you know, you're going from your like traditional um, sodium lamps to, to LEDs. So there, there's all, everyone's gonna notice it, right? And, um, and it's probably brighter and it has a cooler color temperature. And so um, they were getting a lot of complaints from neighborhoods um, that had higher income, Brooklyn Heights, you know, and of course they got the LEDs first. So, um, so just, complaining, complaining is coming in my window. And then um, from other neighborhoods that were traditionally, you know, lower income or um, underserved communities or traditionally disadvantaged communities, 
they really loved it because it was um, it was providing lighting on uh, in a way that they hadn't had before. So, you know, I think it is all about your perspective. Um, and, you know, of course, the to ask about safety, it's, you know, I, I'm always really careful when I'm working with a client that I don't ever try to say that the lighting I'm providing is going to increase safety or decrease safety. I mean, absolutely perceptions of safety or feeling of safety is really critical. And I think that's something that you um, you can't ignore in any project. Um, but yeah, how do you go about that? I mean, I think to me, the key, one of the keys that I focus in on more than the amount of light when I'm thinking about acceptance or feelings of safety is, is um, contrast. So contrast and, and vertical illuminance. So, you know, are, are you able to see faces? Are you able to see um, the sides of buildings? And um, I think there's a really interesting relationship too between um, lighting that Design Trust for Public Space came out with this uh, report looking at um, storefront spaces and areas in um, disadvantaged communities where they have active storefronts. And those active storefronts are open a little later, the lights are on inside and it puts light out on the sidewalk. And um, with LED lighting, the way that they're being installed now in the city, they're often put on the street and the, it lights the street really well, but the sidewalk might be dark, really dark, you know, especially in comparison. And so um, anyway, there's a lot there. I think it's like, we don't have, in urban spaces, we don't have um, experts that do pedestrian lighting, you know? Nobody's lighting the sidewalks. People are lighting the streets. There's engineers that light the streets. Um, and there's some people that are doing some public spaces, but if it's not a, a, a public space that has a lot of money behind it, it's probably not gonna be lit very well. So um, yeah, I think that there's, lighting has a, a clear relationship with feelings of safety and security, but there's so many levels to it. Um, yeah. John? Yeah, right. I think Michael's going to expect me to go straight into a socio-economic uh, <laughs> theory about how we light our exterior spaces. And uh, th there does seem to be a, a very odd thing that within the, uh, within the human species, that the more money you've got, the warmer and the more um, interesting, the more aesthetic, more beautiful uh, your exterior lighting can be. Uh, if you live in a, a brutal and brutalized concrete box, then it will be cold and it will be bright. Uh, presumably so they can see the knife in your hand, that it is as crude as that, uh, which is one of our tragedies, I, I feel. I, I'm just saying stuff, Kate, because I, I'm just going to say, and what do you think? Um, in Over here in the UK, um, we are th there are challenges happening. Um, we have got a design community who is now looking at uh, lighting in the public realm uh, from a much more aesthetic point of view. And in doing that, they are, they are going head to head against the engineers and the politicians and the security forces who will come up and say, we want one looks minimum or whatever it is that we want. And when we say to them, give us the evidence that, that, this, that all of this stuff actually makes us safer and they can't provide it. That information is not there, but I'm interested to to just hear what from your side of things, from your side of the Atlantic, if you like, whether that whether you're hearing that debate, um, whether you you mentioned that you know we've we've got roadway engineers, but we haven't got pavement engineers, which to me is is kind of nonsense because because we're, we're all moving about, 
some of us move faster than others so surely we should be we should be doing lighting for the slow moving people not for the fast moving people how how does that how's that working how has that worked in in your in your practice and and how's it looking now in the in the job that you're now doing I mean, just to respond to what you're saying, I mean, if we're if we're thinking about equity in spaces and, you know, transportation is so connected to to, you know, increasing and promoting equity in, in cities and in rural places. I mean, I think, you know, having it would be amazing to see a career path for people who um, and, you know, funding available for people who could do lighting for pedestrians and and um, transportation pathways like pedestrians and bikeways, right? I mean, there are obviously, there's there are um, recommendations for that. If you look in, I think RP8 has, um, IES has recommendations for um, pedestrians and pathways, and there's more work coming out on that right now. I mean, I know at least through the Illuminating Engineering Society, there's a lot of people looking at um, pedestrian spaces, but um, I, I'm not aware of, of, you know, a city or municipality that has a, a person who's focused on those areas, it might exist, but I, I would love to see that more common. You know, someone who, if you, you have your roadway engineer and then you have your um, pedestrian pathway engineer who's also considering where that lighting goes. I mean, I was just um, recently looking at uh, an installation where they had the the posts mounted. Um, this was actually in a, um, a part of Brooklyn, New York that has the elevated train um, which is, you know, just, it's already kind of oppressive. It's extremely loud and, um, all, and all the apartment buildings on either side are constantly dealing with this extreme noise. So um, it's already sort of jarring. And then the, the posts were mounted between the sidewalk and the street and they were these um, globes that, you know, of course, like if you're concerned mm -hmm. about sky glow, yeah, you don't want to have this globe. And so they replaced it with uh, an LED street light that only lights underneath the the overpass, but it, it's, you know, and it's really well lit. It's really evenly lit. But the crazy thing to me was that there's no crosswalks there. There's no parking there and there's no intersection there. So why are you lighting it like that? And then there's no, and then there's no light, you know, the, there's no, it, you know, the light is only on the street and it's totally dark on the sidewalk so much so that when we were standing there talking to each other, we couldn't see each other's faces, you know? And that's, I, I, I guess I would think, yeah, it's I, it's almost like we should consider. It's not just an overlighting problem. I think it's also an underlighting problem when you're thinking about nighttime design. I think it's it's really about. Um, yeah, I think we do have to consider that the equity of the spaces and making sure that people are able to pass through spaces safely and feeling safely, right? But um, yeah, and I'm I'm not. I don't work with clients right now in the same way, so I don't know. You know, I don't have sort of an insight to um you know within within my design practice to uh what the what clients are are sort of asking for in terms of lighting those spaces but um i know that from you know there is uh, we're doing i'm on the uh discomfort glare committee for um the ies and of course we talk about pedestrians all the time in that committee you know um but uh yeah we're doing our best to to uh come up with a uh technical memorandum with recommendations for how to uh, measure and predict discomfort from glare. Um, I think, you know, based on other, other recommendations that are, that are out there already. So um, I hope that's out soon. I think that'll make a, a difference in terms of how we communicate about um, 
you know, nighttime lighting, like glare, glare aspects at least. So, you know, I think that that also relates to safety and comfort. Can I ask when we? I think one of the things that we that we need to get to is is a is is a wish for darkness. We act to, to actually really relish the concept that there are times when there is no skylight. And if working from that basis, when we then apply light, we're thinking much more positively. I hope in the way that that light works. Whereas we seem to be coming from a place where darkness is bad, darkness is where bad things happen, and therefore we just put illumination. Mm -hmm. And then down the years, we use different ty types of technology, different kinds of sources, different mm -hmm. kinds of optics. And then we find ourselves in an awful place where we've got light sources that seem to be incredibly glary, although they're very, very small, uh, and yet they don't distribute the light in the same way. And so we end up with dark, we end up with, with, with more light in one place, less light in another place, um, mm -hmm. glare, in, glare in, your, in your eye at once. But if you take one step back, there's no light on your face at all. And mm -hmm. it just seems that, that we've lost the plot as to what it is that we want. And we mm -hmm. seem to be working it from, a, from a place of, well, this is what we've got. You know, if we open up the box, this is the box of lighting that we've got. How can we best use it? And again, that's not the box I want. Mm. Can we please have another box? Mm -hmm. so, so again, Kate, I, I offer you, I, have, have you got another box in mind? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, what, yeah, what are the, I mean, if you could think of the boxes as the, you know, the sort of the tools for setting up those design spaces. I mean, there's so many luminaires available, right, for, for nighttime spaces. So, you know, are you... Are you trying to, I, I, I'm sure that there's some designer, I know, I mean, I know there's designers out there or engineers who are using the box of, um, you know, light levels and intensity, right? But there's also the box of uniformity or distribution and there's the box mm -hmm. of um, timing. Um, and so, you know, yeah, I, I, I think that it, it, in general, it's, it's important when we're, you know, when we're dealing with any space to, have those quality lighting conversations and to and to keep pushing to educate about um, you know that that your your paint palette of of tools should be broad and so I mean maybe there's maybe there's more education that needs to happen on on the just the value of uniformity I mean I think that you know yeah you don't want to have a case where you're in the light you take one step back and and it's dark right I mean that's where you have these um, you can create these sensations where someone's in the spotlight. They don't want that. And you also don't want to be, you know, in the mm. dark where you can't see anything. Um, so I think you want to have all those tools available, but it's, um, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I think that it, there are many cases where the dark can be scary. Right. And so it's important to, to also, you know, say, you know, there, there are times when we need to, we really need to provide good lighting and, and increase the lighting. And there's people that, that suffer from, from not having any lighting, you know, even on the, you know, in interiors and exteriors. So, um, yeah, I think, yeah, in order to be sensitive to all of those different contexts, I, you have to, you have to educate about quality. I think, sure. I, I think what maybe we need also need as an industry to introduce some humility and that maybe we don't know what the answer to this question is, John. You know, I mean, you've okay. been doing a couple podcasts with me and on the Restoring Darkness show, and there seems to be always more questions than answers. 
And um, one of the things that, you know, that I think is largely ignored, and I've been screaming it from the rooftops here on this show, on the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast and some other areas, is that PNNL is running a program for um, one of the many players that you guys are running a fantastic testing place where you're testing network lighting controls. And we had someone on the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast and they were telling us, you know, the difference is, you know, okay, put your control system in here and we'll test it, right? And this is what PNNL does. They, they're a government-funded laboratory and they do experiments on things. And what I, what, it was after that show that it occurred to me, the experimentation needs to leave the interior walls with lighting controls and go outside into these environments with mechanically adjustable fixtures so we can change the angle of attack that light goes out. We can change light levels. We can change color temperatures. And we can adjust these things and find out what the answers to these questions should be. And we can, you know, in real time control them and, 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 and compare different neighborhoods with different levels of light with the same light fixture but again they, they have fixtures that are mechanically adjustable not just dimmable and tunable but also with shielding that can be adjusted and you know right now i, I think the only people that could afford that would be like a pnnl <laughs> to do that kind of thing you know where it's such an obvious place to experiment with controls um do you agree with that is pnnl considering anything like that because you guys are really the leaders in this control verification space right now yeah, I mean, I, I, well, definitely there's, there's a lot of questions that, you know, about um, acceptability and preference and feelings of safety related to um, controls. And I think there's more, you know, if we're talking about something like, like sky glow, that's more measurable, right? So we have some more answers on that. Like we know, you know, specify based on spectrum, not CCT, right? Or we know distribution is key, you know, zero mm -hmm. up light. Like there's, there's things that you can do. There's strategies and thresholds that are known. Um, and then of course, there's a lot of questions too, but um, I think when it comes to preference and feelings of safety and security, I guess, yeah, there, I think there's lots of questions. There's lots of work that could be done. And um, I would just maybe put in a plug to anyone um, who's a designer, a specifier. And um, I know it's, really hard to do and and it, it takes a really special kind of client but um i think that there's a there's a real benefit to everybody involved when you can close the loop at the end of the design project and i think it's very rare that this happens and um i've been able to do it on a couple projects but you know you you specify the lighting you talk to the client about their goals and what they want you have outcomes that you set at the beginning that you base your whole design off of you like push your way through the ve process things get installed and then you move on to the next project and so what happened with that installation did was it accepted did people like it you know there there's really limited ways to get feedback and and get the information on whether or not like was it cared for did people vandalize sure. it? did they well are they avoiding that space or they before i turn it over so, i'm going to turn it over to john yeah. but i'm going to make a comment first as someone that has done thousands and thousands and thousands of lighting retrofits okay thousands we're talking millions of kilowatt hours saved energy all this sort of stuff post project measurement and verification is only done by the elite few i'm telling you this is my smartest customers always are asking for me to prove the energy savings after. Can you prove it to me? 
They're always asking for that if they can't obviously find it. So you're right. Post-project benefit measurement and verification is something we're missing. The second thing, John, is, you know, this perception versus safety. Is the perception actually the safety, John? I mean, that's such a tough question. I'll go I'll throw it over to you now. But to me, I don't think that can be answered. Uh, I think I th it's one of the it's, it's oh, dear. Um, generally, let me just make a huge knowing that there are areas where this does not come this does not count generally we're okay generally we can go out of, from our front doors and we can walk about at night and we will not be molested and we will not be attacked and we and life will go on and then we'll see a headline in the paper and things will be terrible and we go with something must be done and we how many times have we said this we need more light at night mm -hmm. even though the lighting may have had nothing to do with whatever the horrendous crime was mm -hmm. but it's the one thing that we, it, it, it's almost it's, it's almost like a security blanket that, that we that we that we rush for um, and and there is that thing was it was it in yeah, my film reference for the day michael the man who shot liberty valance when you get the when you get the choice between uh, quoting the myth or the truth you always quote the myth. Hmm. If, 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 the, if the perception is that more light makes you more safe, that is what people will believe. Mm -hmm. It's not true, but we have got a lot of work to be able to, to, to change it. And one of the problems, Kate, is that I saw that, that you a few years back, you did work with Steve Fotios uh, in Sheffield. He's referenced well, I... in one of your, one of your papers. Yeah, 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 and we're we're on the Degon committee together as well. Okay, good. Well, Steve's got this this great idea or crazy idea, depending on how you look at it, that we can afford to drop our light, our our, our roadway light levels, our street light levels, but we need to make them more uniform. So he reckons you can drop down to two locks, but you need uniformity. Now, the only way that we can prove that or disprove it is someone has to go out and build the damn thing. We need 100 yards or 200 yards or 300 yards or a mile of roadway that are lit to that standard. And unless we do that, it just stays as a theory and no one engages with it. Why? Because it sounds like we're going to need more lampposts. And if we're going to need that, it means we're going to be digging up existing ones and changing it all. And then people are just going to say, too expensive. Forget it. It's not, it's not that important. But if it could be important, if we could reach that stage where you go, actually, there's enormous benefits that we could get from this. It makes, it makes everything softer. I mean, we know we're not great fans of uniformity, to, to be perfectly honest. But if we could find a way of softening everything down, how much better would that be? But who Apart from research departments somewhere who might have uh, might have a campus, might have some roadways to play with, how can we prove it? I think. Go um, on, Kate. He'll have to call in, and we'll have to call, like he can call in and correct me. But I, I think um, uh, John Folhos was, you know, does at the at the Lighting Research Center when it was at RPI did a lot of work on transportation, and he might still be doing that. Um, and. Uh, he had, he had some work that was showing that you know for at least for roadways right that you can you really only need the the lighting in intersections and crosswalks and in many of the other places yeah. you could take it out you know you don't need lighting like along a, a long roadway where nobody's um, intersecting um, if you have headlights um, so yeah I think there's a lot of yeah there's there's maybe that maybe that gives you 
you know, a sort of a, a legal opportunity to try it out, you know, try out lower light levels and say, well, you know, we could get away with nothing, but we're going to try it with this even lighting. Um, yeah, it's hard sometimes to light less uh, than what's recommended, right? Because you don't um, want to put yourself into some kind of a legal trouble um, later on if something yeah. happens in that space, right? Um, uh, I, have, I, I, I had I'm something else I was going to say, but I lost it. Oh, well, I'd let me just give you a chance to find that one again then. Um, in, it, just yeah. in terms of perception, the one thing that I noticed, I live in a small country town. You know, I, I live in a little bubble of light that's surrounded by darkness. They're called fields and farms and things like that. Um, no one goes out at night. No one goes out at night. Everybody wants street lighting. Nobody uses it. So again, we have that thing. We've we've got big cities like like London, where I am at the moment, and and Manchester and Leeds and 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 Birmingham, where they will all talk about the twenty four hour city. They want the cities to be vibrant at night, so they want people to be out there having fun. This doesn't mean that we light them like they're prison yards. We've got to be having more fun with these things, and perhaps. We need to be maybe maybe it's it's the small country places where it's not so important because most old people don't go out at night where you can have more fun. You can turn some of the lights off and no one will notice. But the people who are noticing might be saying, actually, this works. And maybe we could encourage people to put their coats on and put their you know their outdoor boots and their hat and go out and have a walk in the dark. Maybe we, we, we've got we've I don't know about that, John. That's a tough one. I think you went too far there. I don't know if it, I don't know if it's you know I you know I I, I think Story about it. I, I'm gonna throw something out here where you know sometimes you know when you're trying to figure out a problem and there's a, a current hypothesis on the table which is you know sort of assumed to be right. You know maybe there is some evidence or maybe there's different kinds of evidence or maybe people were looking for the answer that they got. You know sometimes that's a problem with research. I'm sure you know sometimes you know you find. The research you're looking for, I think. Um, what's his name? Uh, Winston Churchill said, "I only, I only believe the statistics that I invent myself, um, you know, or whatever, or, or manipulate myself." Uh, but so people are often, you know, look finding the answer they want to find. But I wonder, have we ever studied criminality from this perspective? Like instead of studying safety and studying, you know, people's perceptions of safety or whatever. Do you know, Kate, of any research where people said, let's study people who've committed crimes and find out how the electric outdoor light affected their decision or non-decision to, you know, uh, you know, commit a robbery or to rob the car or to attack the person. Is there any research on the other side like that that you're aware of? Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, and I think that played really heavily into the conversations that we had with the the community design team. Um, so again, I'm just going to go back to this project that I've been working on for a while now, but it's um, the, uh, at, at this particular New York City Housing Authority, it's the Lillian Wald Houses in um, Manhattan. Um, but we we did a lot of recruiting and got about, um, I mean, over, it was a sort of a regular group of maybe 30 people that lived either in that um, uh, set of houses or the next one over um, to come and, and do the design. For this project, and then there were there was an architect, there was a community organizer, a lighting designer. That was me, uh, working with them on it. And so, so they they came to the design conclusions, right? We we helped them do it. But, um, but I think there was a lot of education involved, and and I don't think that they ever 
you know, came to the table saying we want a lot of light, um, but they definitely, you know, came to the table with their a history of, you know, a series of other kind of design adjustments that had happened over time based on that time period and that context in that place related to, you know, fears about safety and security. So, you know, they had been through um, a time period in the 70s where uh, there were these just like, I mean, extensive, like, you know, um, dangerous in the sense that like they were beautiful, these kind of crazy playgrounds that were built out of bricks and there were like pyramids and tunnels. And I mean, I just look at it and I see kids falling and bruising, um, but they were like these amazing playgrounds um, that were built on, on those properties. And then in the eighties, when there was a lot of crime, they took everything out, broke all the benches, destroyed um, any kind of seating or community areas, you know, and so the idea was that there was a lot of crime and so their their um, approach was to uh, take get rid of any community spaces um, and um, and it, then it sat like that for a long time. They put up the fences around every green area and that's what the New York City Housing Authority projects look like now is that there's no place to play. There's no place to gather. There's only pathways um, with, you know, low pressure sodium lighting it, that's it. And then um, when we came along with this idea of taking the fence down, it was it was a reaction to the fact that, there, that there's no public spaces in here. And so um, so we started talking about that. What does that mean? You know, we heard all these histories of the, you know, people coming in with sledgehammers and destroying the only seating that they had. Um, and, uh, and we talked a lot about what lighting means and what community space means. And, I, um, and I've, I've done a lot of reading and research into lighting and criminality. And um, from, from the research I've done, um, it also brings me to the same conclusion that um, quality of light is key and uh, creating spaces where, you know, it's been shown that you can have a crime in some area and then you, you know, come in and overlight that area. And so it just pushes, it's dispersing, right? It pushes people to other areas. They're not gonna do the thing that they were doing in the area that's now a spotlight. They're gonna do it over here. And it doesn't need to be a dark area. It needs to be an area where there's not community engagement, where there's not that sort of self-policing, right? And so when you create these spaces that are beautiful, that um, are comfortable to sit in, that don't have glary lights, then you have people sitting out on porches, you have kids playing outside and people aren't gonna jack a car. Um, so um, I think it's really important. I think you can't overstate the focus on quality when it comes to um, outdoor light lighting at nighttime. And, and I think that's, I think we really quickly got to that space with the community design team. They are, you know, their priorities on that project are to have, um, are to have even lighting that's not glary, that doesn't shine in their windows and that feels, that makes the place feel comfortable as if it was, you know, the way that it felt in the daytime. And so that's, that's what we designed it to. Um, but the, um, yeah, I'll leave it there. So there's different types of crime, okay? And um, what you were describing there, and this is what, you know, I find interesting about this debate, and I think you know, John will probably have some thoughts on this as well. It's this either or. And so the, 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 the place is either lit up brightly so the crime moved, right? Or, or, you know, migrated to areas of darkness. But I would suggest that there's probably certain types of crime that like highlight levels, say, sort of say protests in the evening, which are turning into riots, 
may actually prefer well-lit environments. And I'd love to see a study on behavior in, in, in environments. Like if you look at, if you, if you watch some of the, the, the street violence that happened in the United States over the last two years, what's peculiarly interesting is how well-lit it all is. Like if you watch it, you can see Kyle Rittenhouse in the middle of the night standing with a with a with whatever you feel about that. I'm not going to get political on this, but however you feel of that particular incident, he was lit up like it was daytime and it was the middle of the night, and people are running yeah, around the also, place. They're in public spaces. I mean, <laughs> right? You know, they're not going to go protest in the middle of a cow field, you know, where nobody's there. No, but, but what I'm saying I is, also, I think I, that just, I th let me let me just comment. I, I think, don't think that it's the, an either or though. Yeah. Okay, so what I'm saying is that I think lighting controls can get us out of the either-or, where we can try different things and see what actually works without having to change light fixtures. And you can try typical neighborhoods or experiment with different streets. John's got his hand up. Let's go over to John. What do you got, John? Yeah, and then well, back well, to Kate I, I, on this. I'm, I'm not... I'm not going to suggest that one way of, of stopping a riot is by turning the street lights off because you've got good <laughs> lighting control. But that sounds like one of the things that could probably even cheaper than using water cannon if that were to work. Um, a little bit of research that, that, that we've had in the UK um, on, I think, simple sort of basically breaking, breaking into a car and stealing what's on the back seat, the usual thing. Um, they found that there is greater incidence of that kind of crime in high lit areas and the the lower the light levels the less crime there is and someone just made a simple point that maybe if it's too dark to see what's on the back seat of the car why would anybody try to break into it mm. i've only i, I uh, yeah, we've 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 only had our, our our cars sort of broken into twice and one was exactly to do that, to, to break, to, to take the thing that was on the back seat. And the other one was some guy who was completely drunk and he broke four of the windows in, in, in a brightly lit car park. And then he just went down the row of cars and did all the rest of them as well. Yes. Um, whether that had anything to do with lighting, but it was that kind of low grade crime. Breaking, in, breaking into a car and stealing a, a laptop that's on the back seat is low grade stuff, isn't it? Yeah, mm -hmm. it's and it's and it's poor stuff, and it's and and it's poor in many ways. It's poor because the people who are doing it maybe don't have any money, do not have any other resources, and just sort of lifting something and taking it and getting a few dollars for it is is what you do. Which it, it, I'm sorry, but this drives us back is to into why this behaviour. We have we've had uh, another report of local police forces um, getting involved in planning decisions on public gardens and landscaping schemes, removing benches and seats and gathering places. Why? Because they do not want people, and I think they mean, mean youngsters really, from gathering because clearly they're all potential, I don't know, they're Michael's demonstrators or they're, or they're, or they're just young people who want to kick a ball around or get drunk or take drugs or whatever it is that, they, whatever it is that young people do these days. But he said it's an appalling view of how we want to live. It's it it is it is a terribly sad indictment mm. um, that yet yeah, we we live we live in a place where light is a cure to a social problem, mm -hmm. whereas there are other cures to social problems without having to 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 do horrendous things by doubling light levels, trebling light levels, and and all the rest of that. So, Kate, you got about so, a thousand questions in there and thoughts. <laughs> where, where, you know, where is your research in all this? I mean, it's it's such a complicated topic, but 
you know, what, what are your thoughts on all what we just, you know, John and I just spoke on there? Um, I guess, you know, it, it would be interesting to see if the relationship, you know, if there were relationships between lighting and, and crime that were, you know, sort of causal as opposed to coincidental, because I think that when you're talking about lighting and crime areas, you know, there's also, there's so many other factors involved, right? So um, I don't know, it'd be hard. I, I think at this point, it'd be hard to say that there's a, any relationship between, you know, that's clearly pointing to lighting and crime, but there are, um, there are, you know, regulations being developed on that. And I think, um, one is that there's a report that came out, I think it's called Crime Lab. Mm -hmm. uh, they wrote a report for the mayor's office in New York City looking at um, crime and lighting. And, and in this case, they came out with a, a white paper that basically had, um, you know, they did an experiment where they took those police lights, the, the you know, very loud, there, there's a generator, you put gas into it, it, it runs on a generator all night long and you have the two or four or six um, big spotlights, you know, lighting an area where there's some crime happened at some point. And so um, it's it's loud, it smells bad, it lights up the area. And it's part of this sort of idea of omnipresence, right? That um, that the omnipresence is kind of the new smashing the bench away. You know, we're, we're always watching you. And so we have this eye on you. Um, and they found that in the areas where they put these really bright lights that are also loud and also, you know, smell really bad, that crime didn't happen there. And um, and then made a recommendation about a kind of a light dose based on that on that on that light. And um, that's a correlation, yeah. though. That's a correlation. Yeah. I don't know if that's it's, the cause. You know, it's not the cause. Yeah. And so I, the last thing you want is someone saying, OK, well, now I can put these light doses anywhere, you know, around it. it, it it's exactly in the opposite direction of this concept of providing quality spaces so that people can watch out for themselves and others, you know, and that kind of the respect for the community. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think that when you're, if, if you're doing design for a space, it doesn't matter, you know, if you're a higher end lighting designer and engineer, like you always just have to be aware of who's using the space and how they're using it and how you can respect them. And if there's a way to get feedback from them, that's the best thing you can do. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's, um, it's just never a one size fits all thing, right? It's just every installation is going to be so context based. Um, I think we just can't forget that. You know, there's a certain amount you, you talked about. I meant we mentioned the either or dilemma, you know, where it's either new lighting and bright or we have to now change those lights out. And what would be interesting to me, and then you said, you know, perhaps some of the crime related to loitering or, or, open air drug use and that is going to gravitate to these darker areas or whatever. What I would propose is lighting controls that vary the amount of lights without people being able to predict them. And so you, you would have like, you'd be both experimenting with, okay, what light level does actually decrease light, reduce increase crime. We could actually do that street, raise the light level for a week, lower it for a week, raise it. And if, and, and also do that to sort of, uh, to put people on their toes as this area is not going to be dark forever. Sometimes it's light. Sometimes there's more light here. Sometimes there's less light. And so these people are looking for areas that are they know are going to be dark all the time or streets that they know are going to be dark all the time. And the introduction of controls can help us adjust. I mean, you could have real-time data flowing um, this is not comp this is not science, this is not research, this is not engineering. This is simply the will to deploy the technology we already have. 
right? And you could control this stuff and start doing different kinds of experiments. If, if streets vary their light levels from day to day that in a way that's maybe not perceptible to someone who's walking home from college, and I'll tell you, you can reduce lights significantly. And if you do it slowly and over a certain period of time, people will not notice at all. I've done it. I know, and not on the outside, but on the inside, and people don't really notice. So if you were to do these kinds of things in a controlled experiment, you could answer a lot of these questions, Kate. I have, an, I have another experiment proposal. What if you Aha. take, what if you go to communities that, you know, maybe have higher crime rates or um, have other factors that, you know, would maybe mean that they have less quality controls and you get people to come in and just give them beautiful lighting in those spaces and then see what difference that makes. And if you had so, certain factors, you know, are you looking for satisfaction, perceptions of safety, um, improved use of streets and spaces? Um, you know, what are some things that we would hope for from a space and then see if you can measure those, um, you know, increasing if someone has. You know, I have a question for you. On that. Yeah. Okay. I have a question on that. Is beautiful lighting how the light fixture looks when you look at the light fixture or is beautiful lighting the light itself? Right. I, so, I mean the light itself. Yeah. At night, but, it, but both. Right. Yeah. I mean, like if you That's go to, yeah, if you go to uh, like a small town where I live, they have these beautiful, they look like, they look like old, um, old uh, gas lamps and they were HPS and it was absolutely gorgeous. A little bit too high wattage. I would have lowered the wattage a little bit to, yeah, but then they change them to 5,000 KLED. It looks disgusting. It looks like it, it's yeah. horrible. Like, oh my God. It's like, what did you do to, what did you do to my gas lamp, bud? <laughs> it looks like a UFO uh, it, orb is coming down and they're equidistant along the road. These beautiful oh, decorative posts and everything. No, it wasn't gas. Yeah, it wasn't gas. It was HPS in the fixture, right? Okay. But it was 2200 Kelvin or whatever, 1800 Kelvin, whatever HPS is. So the question of beauty yeah. is, you know, kind of in the eye of the beholder, you know, and, and, mm -hmm. and um, you know, what I wonder is if you just took the money from the lights and handed it out to the people, instead of changing the lights, would there be less crime? You know, I mean, I, I, you know, sometimes I, I think that the crime is probably more related to socioeconomic status than lighting and whether or not you have money and how desperate you are. And what, you know, I, I think that there's other things that are probably more directly causative of, of crime than would be um, lighting or lack thereof. So John, I'm going to turn it over to you for some, uh, for final question, if you have one. And then Kate, if you can tell us uh, maybe some stuff we missed and a little bit about maybe your research and we'll close it off. Okay. Right. Kate, how's this for an idea? This is just sort of two designers just sort of shooting the breeze a little bit. So pick, picking up on, on Michael's idea of, of, of dynamic control, dy dy dynamic light delivery in, in the, in the public space. Um, and most of the time, we don't need hardly any light at all. If you walk out of your door and you scan, you want to be able to see there's a car parked over there. Is that a dog walking across the road? You want to be able to see to the end of the street. But, you, but that's moonlight kind of level. We hardly need much more than that. But if, we walk, but if there are people walking around the streets, if there's more activity, yes, and, of course, and lighting companies are talking about this all the time, that we could, just, we could just lift the light level to make it a little bit more safe, especially if the local authorities haven't bothered to fix the broken paving. So you can actually see trip hazards and stuff like that. 
But here's the thing. If people start to gather in these ways that our security forces think is a very antisocial thing to do. But if we go, no, actually, that's a very social thing. If people want to gather around something and have a chat, maybe we should maybe we should give them a little bit more light. So maybe the, 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 there's a proposal here that that we we have we have a we have a a, a, a mat of, of of illumination potential which starts out very very low, and then we do this sort of this hardly discernible lift for if it's just one or two people, but if you get half a dozen eight people a dozen people, they're gathering there for something even if it's just to have fun. So we've got the opportunity to just lift the light level in that. It's like a little bit of, they're, they're on stage. And it's a beautiful thing rather than it's us pointing a light at a bunch of terrorists. Mm. But in order mm. to win that, that prison of the panopticon that Kate was talking about. Oh, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. yeah well, or the omnipresence or whatever. Yeah. 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 That, that, yeah. Which, which is a, which is a horrendous concept. Of course it is. Mm -hmm. But, we have somehow it's happening negatively in the uk because we are looking at light levels and then we're saying well the bats won't like it and the insects won't like it and the crops won't like it so we need to drop our light levels down so it, it, it's 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 never the carrot it's always the stick we're always saying mm. to someone you can't do that we're not going to let you do that the astronomers won't like it we're not going to let you do that but we need to shift that around and we need to demonstrate mm. And we've said in a, in a different forum, you know, the idea that sometimes someone has to take a risk and say, in this space, in this settlement, in this park, in this city centre, mm. we're going to do something brave, mm. and we're going to see what happens. And if it works, we're going to invite the rest of the world to come and see it. Mm. So, Kate, you and me, designers both, what do you reckon? I think what we need is a kind of a Illumina Awards for um, creating spaces that work well for people, as opposed to, you know, facades that outside of a restaurant that, you know, bring people in to spend a lot of money. So um, I think that would increase the conversation about those types of spaces. And, you know, in the, in the conversations that we have in the Degon committee, it's, it's manufacturers, it's, it's designers and specifiers and researchers. And there's some designers out in our group, you know, and that I know in my from my career that are doing really amazing projects like that, where they're saying, can we do this space a little bit differently? Um, and you don't see those highlighted, right? You don't see those featured because it's just not very glamorous. And so um, I would say, yeah, let's have, a, let's have a forum and a place to celebrate that kind of work that's, you know, work that's done, you know, created by communities for communities, work that's, um, you know, focused on creating quality spaces where there wasn't a quality space before, or work that pulls in information, you know, post-project and, and gives you feedback on the results and where, you know, where someone's been able to iterate and improve based on what they learned. So, um, yeah. Hmm. I'd vote for that. Me too. Um, where can people find your work and your research? Okay. Oh, yeah, I have... Um... I do have a website. Um, it's katesweater.com. So it's got a link to my research on there, uh, my papers that I've written. It's got a link to my previous website if you wanted to see any of the work that I had done before architectural lighting design work. And um, and of course, I have um, information on the PNNL website if you look me up. So my name is 
Kate Sweater Hickox. You got to use both names, <laughs> and then you can find me. So let let's let's spell um, that last name, that middle last name. There, um, so is it S W E A T E R? Yep, just like the clothes. Yeah. KateSweater.com is that the website? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's and, right. And if you're, if you're on PNNL, you got to search Kate Hick, uh, Sweater Hickox. Hickox. All right. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Well, another one in the bag, folks. I want to thank John Bullock, so gracious with his time. Always helped me out as a, I don't know if he's a co-host. I don't like the word co-host. He's just another host here on Restoring Darkness and sharing his thoughts. And, of course, Kate Hickox from our friends at Pacific Northwest National Laboratory. What a wonderful organization that is. And coming up, if you want to hear more from them, Get a Grip on Lighting is putting out a five-part series with PNNL as a special release. Coming out, Scotty, I think it's August and beginning of September. Just give me a nod, something like that. Look for that. It's going to be really hot. But for right now, if you made it to the end, I know we love you guys. Bye for now. Look no further for dark sky friendly products than Evluma. Since its first product launch, Evluma has carried one or more International Dark Sky Association certified models. If your customer cares about light pollution, suggest the Omnimax with shielding or the Area Max with full cutoff to reduce uplight and glare. Evluma, illuminating the pursuit of darkness.